Hey, this is Joe Bakmutsky and welcome to Simplify Cancer Podcast. You know, I'm really excited today because I get to talk to my new friend. Her name is Frances Goodhart and she wrote this great book called The Cancer Survivor's Companion, Practical Ways to Cope with Feelings after cancer. Frances is a clinical psychologist and you know it's a real privilege to hear from her because she genuinely cares about people who go through these tough times. And today Frances shares some fantastic advice on dealing with fatigue during cancer. Stress, overwhelm, sleep, sex, I mean you name it, it's all in here. These are some great tools you can start applying right away. Francis, first of all, what made you write a book on cancer? So I was working in a cancer psychological support service and and I was seeing, you know, a, a large number of people post-cancer treatment and they were coming in for appointments and they came in just incredibly apologetic and they f- it was as if they felt embarrassed, guilty even about using up psychological resources for particularly at the end of treatment. So I would spend, you know, a lot of certainly the first session and often many sessions kind of trying to reassure people that it was very natural, very appropriate for them to be coming to a psychological support service. And what I wanted to do was to be able to kind of add to my own voice by directing people to information that would illustrate that, that would reassure them that post-cancer treatment, uh, it was valuable and important to address psychological issues. And I couldn't find a book anywhere because I I was particularly looking for, for a book because I feel that you know, seeing things printed out on paper that have been published just adds a weight to that information. But I couldn't find a book anywhere. So in the end, I thought, <laughs> well, <laughs> it's not there. There's a gap in the market and I better fill it. So that's how I, that, that's how I came up about the idea of writing. Yeah, that's fantastic. And, and I think I, I found the same. I found that there's really not, not much out there at all in terms of, no. you know, real practical advice. Uh, but one thing I want to come back to, Francis, is uh, one thing you said that really surprised me is that you said that the people actually you spoke to, that the people felt guilty about mm-hmm. coming to you and, and, and asking for help. What's with that? Mm-hmm. Well, it may be something about being British. Um, I think <laughs> that, that as a, a, a nation, we somehow, there's still an element of, of stiff upper lip. I think there's still an element of, um, you know, just, just keep pushing on through. I think, I think it's changing hugely now, but this was, you know, this was 10, 15 years ago and, I think there was still a stigma actually about, uh, about seeking psychological input, seeking emotional support. So I think that, that people were bringing that in a sense into the consulting room with me. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think there is definitely that. I think people feel, feel guilty in a way, I guess. 
I, I think I, I, I certainly did at one point, uh, because you kind of feel that you're supposed to, supposed to deal with it on your own, you know, and if you don't, it's somehow like a weakness, if that makes sense. Um, it makes total sense. It makes total sense. And I, I, again, I think this is changing now, but 10 years ago, I don't think all of the medical teams were perhaps as aware of the psychological impact of, of a cancer diagnosis and treatment and weren't exploring with their patients how they were coping emotionally. And, and, and so I think, you know, if you're going to a cancer service and you're being told you need chemo, you need radiotherapy, surgery, whatever it might be, I think the teams weren't addressing psychological issues, weren't signposting people on to psychological support services. And, and I think that was a, a real problem because I think people, you know, if, if your medical team are talking to you from the start about both the physical and the psychological consequences of, of diagnosis and treatment, then it's, you know, it's, it's just a natural part of the, the process. But if, if you are having to bring up the fact that you're struggling or anxious or finding the whole process difficult emotionally as well as physically, that's a, you know, that's a tough, tough ask, really, I think. And, and I'm really pleased that within the NHS in Britain, we're now routinely screening for and thinking much more holistically about cancer support. That's fantastic. Uh, that's fantastic, Francis. So one thing I, wa- I want to touch on is uh, you mentioned that when, when it comes to you know writing the book, you, you felt that there was definitely a gap. In terms of approach to the book and, and how you were thinking about it, did you find certain patterns that came up when you were when you were talking to people uh, certain themes that would come up over and over again that maybe made you think i <laughs> i need to write this down yes absolutely and and in a sense i think the the chapters in the book that i cover in a sense illustrate most of those areas but i mean the overarching issue i think for people was was anxiety, was fear of recurrence. But there was a lot beyond that as, as well. I think that cancer diagnosis and, and treatment and then coming through the other side can, you know, it just inevitably makes people or, you know, the people who were coming to see me, I, I recognize that was a self-selecting group and other people may be able just to put treatment behind them. But the people that I was seeing were acknowledging impact on mood. Uh, you know, I think particularly at end of treatment, there's this, there are huge expectations that you're going to feel elated, excited, that you're going to get back to normal very quickly. And actually, in my experience, that's not what happens to people. And then I think, Again, the, the, that kind of, you know, that array of, of distress. So, so guilt, shame, low mood, sometimes a, a clinical level of depression. 
impact on relationships, uh, sex life, of course. And that was something that, again, you know, being British, we're not always comfortable in talking about, but actually it's really key to, to look at and to acknowledge and, and to talk about. I think that people's self-image is, is often, you know, really profoundly altered by a cancer diagnosis and treatment. And then at a kind of more, the, the sort of interface between psychological and physical, I think people uh, were often bringing issues around, around sleep, around fatigue, uh, around, you know, some of the consequences of, of chemo brain and memory issues. And I suppose those were the, those were probably the key themes that that struck me that makes so much sense francis and what one of the things that i really love about your book is that it's, it's so practical it's it's so hands-on it's got so, so many things that you can apply today in real life and um i mean, I guess because you know cancer is such a difficult place to be right like you're constantly in between tests and and treatment you know, visit to a specialist so how do you deal with with worries with stress with anxiety Thank, thank you, Joe. Um, thank you for your comment about my book, but, but also for picking up, uh, the fact that it's a practical book because that was so important to me to, 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 to create this companion in a sense that, that people can carry with them, can dip in and out of and pick out practical techniques. Uh, in terms of, of managing worry and anxieties, fears, I think, I mean, I think the first thing I would say is that you don't go through cancer or beyond cancer without those emotions. I, I just don't believe anyone is, is, uh, superhuman enough to, to face all of that without some level of anxiety. And, and I think that sometimes we put pressures on ourselves and we have expectations of ourselves. That, that are, that are superhuman, that are beyond what any of us can manage. So partly, I think in terms of managing anxiety, one of the things is, is not to kind of build it up into something greater than it is. So you just recognize, okay, today is a worry day or, you know, actually I'm coming up to a checkup moment. My mind is going to be racing. I am going to be anxious and, and, and not kind of building on that anxiety by feeling that somehow you're not coping, you're not managing. So that, that's the first thing. I think just being able to acknowledge and at some level accept, okay, this is an anxious day for me today. That's okay. It's not going to have any impact on, on me long term. So that's the starting point. But I think that, that there are also very practical things one can do to, to stop those thoughts from dominating. I don't think you can stop them from coming into your mind. And I, I really, you know, I hope that's one of the themes that comes from my book. It's not, this isn't about making you go through life without emotion. It's just how do we manage it? So with worries, write them down. You know, if you put them onto paper, they're out of your head. And I think the brain, our brain is 
you know, this extraordinary organ that, that kind of works once we're anxious. It seems to want to keep us anxious. So we will mull over, ruminate, repeat anxious thoughts. And actually, if you can just write them down, that's a starting point that, that can, can help. I think the other thing to do, a, another thing is to try. I recognize it's not easy, but try to give yourself a kind of part of the day where you say, okay, now it's my worry time. And you actually allow yourself to look at those thoughts, to let them come into your head, to explore them, to examine them. But you do that for a time limited period of time. So, because I think sometimes this idea of, you know, just don't think like that, push those thoughts away. Sometimes when we're strong, we can do that, but other times we can't. And I think just saying, okay, I'm going to have 10 minutes of worry time now, and then I'm going to cook the kids supper or watch a TV program or call a friend, you know, so that it's time limited. Uh, I think that there are relaxation strategies that one can use, again, not to make the thoughts go away, but to just help them to feel more controlled. And then I think the other thing is that worries and anxieties sometimes need to be explored and verbalized, but also looked into. So if you find a useful source of information, use that, look at that, but be very careful about Dr. Google. I think that can, <laughs> you know, sources of information that we don't know how reputable they are, they, they can increase anxiety. But actually, if you want to look at some of your concerns and you have a website or a book that you've been recommended or that you just feel instinctively is helpful, use that. Yeah, that's fantastic. That's fantastic, Francis. I, I love it. And I especially love the tool about worry time. I haven't I haven't obviously um used it just yet, but it intuitively feels right. Thank you. Thank you. I I think what intuitively feels uncomfortable to me is this idea that that one simply pushes worries, distress away because I think that can work for a while, but actually long term I have a concern that it it actually over time allows the distress to build up. So I think that idea of just accepting, yep, I have some worries. Let me look at them, but not look at it so that it's disrupting your whole day. Absolutely, absolutely. And you mentioned, uh, you know, that it's it is incredibly stressful, and that makes me, you know, start to think about the fact that many people don't get the emotional support that they need from their friends, from from their family, from their coworkers. Is that something you you come across? And if so, what should you do when you feel overwhelmed when, and when you feel alone? Thank you. I I think yes, of course, I come across people who who feel incredibly alone. And I, I remember a very powerful session I had with a man who talked to me about. He said I went into this room full of family and friends. I think it was 
a, a party set up to celebrate his successful end of cancer treatment. And he said, I was surrounded by my closest family and friends, and I've never felt more alone. And that's wow. that has stuck with me. But I also think that that emotional support is an incredibly difficult thing for family and friends to provide. And I think that actually a lot of the time people going through cancer and people after cancer treatment don't always know for themselves what would be helpful. And, you know, one hour talking would be helpful. Another hour, the last thing somebody wants to do is to talk. So I do want to acknowledge that I think it's a, it's a minefield. Support from family and friends is, is, is really difficult to provide at times. Of course, there are amazing, intuitive, supportive family and friends who get it right. But I think a lot of the time people get it wrong. I don't think they mean to. I'm quite sure they don't. I think people long to help and support, but they don't always know how best to do that. And that's where I really think finding a listening ear, finding whether it's a psychologist, a counsellor, an online cancer support chat room. I, I just think that sometimes what people need is the chance to to talk, to think, to reflect with someone who isn't emotionally involved themselves. And I would encourage people to think about that, not to see seeking outside help as, as, as weakness, very far from it. I see it as a very positive, proud step that's part of the armory of tackling cancer. It's not, it, and it doesn't replace support from family and friends. It's just a different way of, of seeking emotional backup, I guess. Absolutely, Francis. And I couldn't agree more. And I also have a deep belief that uh, if you're going through cancer or, or, or after cancer, uh, wherever you may be, that you should use every available tool at your disposal to, to help you get through it, you know? Absolutely. I, I couldn't agree with you more. And, and you know, I'm quite sure there are, there are a whole raft of approaches and tools that I don't know of. I think, and I would say to people, you know, follow your instincts. If, if, if you think something would be helpful, try. There's no harm in, in trying things out. Absolutely, because you're, you're going through uh, an incredibly rough time and you're experiencing a whole range of emotions. Yeah. And at times you feel angry. And, uh, and speaking of angry, Francis, is, is it okay to be angry when you have cancer? Not only is it okay, I think it's completely, completely natural. And at times really helpful to acknowledge anger. So I think, you know, cancer, cancer is a threat. I mean, cancer is, you know, the, just the most enormous threat that, that most of our, you know, ever face. And our natural instinctive response to threat is, is 
the fight flight mechanism. But the fight bit is a very strong part of that. So I don't think, I don't think most people can go through cancer without experiencing and at times expressing anger. What I think is important is firstly that the anger doesn't impact on your treatment. And, and secondly, that the, the anger doesn't irreparably damage the relationships and the support around you. So obviously, you need to be able to manage and control the anger so that it's not, it's not hurting either yourself or, or, or other people. But actually, I would say beyond that, express it. Find a place, you know, either with somebody that wants to come with you or on your own, you know, shout, scream, let the anger out, punch a pillow, go for a <laughs> run if you can, you know, just never hurt anybody else but or yourself, but but let it out and express it. And also don't forget that you can always say sorry to someone if you've if you've shouted at them or you've responded in a in an angry way that isn't your usual style just acknowledge that and and acknowledge that this isn't how things are always going to be it's just that you're under threat and you're angry yeah absolutely that makes so much sense francis and yeah i guess uh, all the normal rules apply i mean if, if you screwed up <laughs> it's a good idea to say sorry yeah I, I think sorry often seems to be quite quite a hard word for, for, for many of us, but it's a good one. If yeah, you can. I, would, I wouldn't really know because I've never been wrong in my life. Oh, but. Of course, Joe. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> Should we discuss that with your friends and family? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, yeah. I'll, I'll definitely call my wife over to, to talk about it. <laughs> Um, Francis, yeah. So speaking of that, like from personal experience, I know that, uh, you know, many relationships are tested during uh, cancer. Mm -hmm. You know, we touched on the whole, uh, and we spoke about this earlier, about friends, about all of that sort of stuff. Like what do advice do you have in this area to avoid common pitfalls and, and misunderstandings and so on? Yeah. Thank you for asking that. And, and I completely agree with you. I think the impact on relationships is one of the the most profound impacts of 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 going through cancer and and treatment again i think saying sorry when one needs to both sides uh is you know is is worth considering but actually at a more practical level i think the advice i would give is really try to listen to each other. And that's an easy thing to say. How do you actually do that? And in, in the book, I talk about kind of trying to bring in your own personal relationships to bring almost some of the structure of therapy sessions into that. So in, in a therapy session with a, with a couple, I start by getting each member of that, of that couple to talk about why they're there and to talk about their concerns and their issues. And I don't let the other person interrupt. You'd be surprised actually how, how hard that is. Actually, maybe you wouldn't be surprised. <laughs> it's, you know, I, I think. It, I'll take it I as think, a compliment. <laughs> but, but I think that thing of, 
that actually in, in a relationship and friendship, you know, often conversation is a, is, is quite rapid two way process. Actually, just when you're dealing with such deep and profound emotions around, around cancer, try not to interrupt. So listen to each other. Let that person, the first person talk until they're talked out. Then, the second person gets the chance to to reply. I think the other thing about there about about therapy is that it's time limited, and I think a lot a lot of times people are anxious about really talking or listening to each other because they think we're going to open this can of worms and we're never going to be able to 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 stop. So I I think sort of saying to each other and setting an alarm, you know, saying we've got an hour or half an hour. I wouldn't do more than an hour really, but (laughs) you know, it might be 20 minutes that you just, and then you set the alarm. And then when it, when it goes off, you draw it to a close and you stop. And I think having a way to bring these, these deeply at times distressing conversations to a close actually can help you to to start them. And the other thing is, try if you can not to have these conversations in the bedroom, in your in your kitchen, in your sitting room. If you can, be somewhere outside your home because I think again in therapy you're outside your home and I think that that means that the home doesn't get contaminated with all those all those articulated, expressed feelings. That's uh, I love this advice, Francis. That's that's fantastic, and I really it's another theme that I've just kind of picked up on. I guess this idea of time boxing. I think that's really fantastic. Like mm-hmm. putting um, putting you know this uh, this time box around you know your worries, putting a time box around you know talking things through. I think I think that these are fantastic tools. And Francis, what about fatigue? Mm. It's something that affects pretty much everyone going through treatment. How could you manage your energy better? Yeah. Again, I, I think at times I may sound a bit repetitive, but I think one of the things is look at the expectations of yourself and try to be kinder or simply more realistic for yourself. You know, going through cancer treatment and and coming through cancer treatment, you, you know, your body has been through the most grueling experience and you are simply not going to have the same energy levels. So really try, try to prioritize things, work out what, what is the most important thing for you to be using your limited energy on and then let some of let some of the other things go. It doesn't mean they've gone forever. It might be you might decide I never want to do the hoovering again. <laughs> um, <laughs> but 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 more seriously, I think it's about um, just just prioritizing what you need to focus on. I think the other thing is actually building in planned, structured breaks or, or rests in your day so that you're not only resting when you're exhausted you're actually trying to 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 give yourself some downtime before you've become worn out 
So I think that's something I would really recommend to people. Try to, try to rest before exhaustion has, has kicked in. I recognize that for some people, even the, the term rest is, is an uncomfortable one. Change the language. Talk to yourself. Don't say, I'm going to have a rest. Say, I've got some downtime or I'm going to have some restoration time or I'm going to take a break. It doesn't have to be rest, but it needs to be conserving your energy. And don't look at it as self-indulgent or weak. It's actually, you know, I, I sometimes prescribed it and I have, you know, for, for my clients. It was, it was, and sometimes they needed me to do that. But I, I think it's, it's really, really important to, as, as, as part of your well-being to look at your energy levels and, and conserve them. But, and this is a big but, I also think that counterintuitively, you also need to look at your exercise levels and you need to look at, at, at your fitness levels. And I think, I know it's, it, it, for many people, it, it, it's very counterintuitive, but we, our bodies decondition so quickly. And I think just having some, you know, advice from your medical team about how to exercise, what's safe, what's appropriate, what's comfortable, how to build up your exercise and build exercise into your daily routine actually does start over time. In fact, rather than to tire you out, it it helps to build up your energy reserves again. That's fantastic advice, Francis. I remember that when I, when I was going through treatment, my oncologist recommended that I do walks every day. And you know, and I was doing it, started doing it every night and it was, it was, it was pretty tough sometimes, but it actually helped me to clear my head. And I was actually incredibly grateful because it, it made me feel so much better. And it became something that I'm doing, you know, to this day now, more than, more than a year from, from treatment, you know? Yeah. I'm so glad. I'm so glad to hear that. And I, I think, I mean, I, I can't believe I'm saying this. I'm an old fashioned type person. <laughs> I, you know, I grew up thinking, you know, if you feel ill, if you feel tired, rest, stop. But actually, I genuinely, and, and I hated, I hated sports at school and university. <laughs> I had, I never, I didn't have a physical routine in my, in my life. And actually, in the last decade, I think because of being a psychologist and because the information was so profoundly changed, it, it, you know, that, and everyone said exercise is vital for you, both physically and psychologically. I thought, well, I, I better check this out. And I'm now, I, I just go for walks or occasionally a little jog. But it's a daily part of my routine now, and and that's that's without having gone through a cancer diagnosis and treatment myself. But it's I, I tell my children, I tell my friends. I think it's the most important psychological tool that we have. Good on you, Francis, and good on you for following on your own advice. <laughs> <laughs> mm, I, I, I don't always do that. <laughs> I try. <laughs> 
<laughs> and and I love what you said about about managing your energy with respect to you know resting even even when you're not exhausted. I know that mm-hmm. when I was going through treatment, my first round of chemotherapy was again counterintuitively a lot tougher for me because I was kind of pushing myself through exhaustion, through feeling tired, and for the, for my second and third rounds. I kind of understood there were, you know, there were peaks, uh, there were ups and downs, and and then I would actually, you know, take rest uh, before that, and it allowed me to, you know, take it, uh, you know, in a much better way, and even even in terms of seeing people, you know, like I would have friends or family come to the hospital, and I knew, I knew for a fact that in the evening I would be completely smashed. So I said, you know, if you want to come in, come in the morning, you know, and that that really helped, you know. Yes. Exactly. And I love the fact, Joe, that you had, had worked that out, that you were also able, having worked that out, to express that. And that's not, again, that's not easy. You know, you've got family, friends, people wanting to come and see you. But actually, you knew that you had to prioritize your own well-being. You had to prioritize and safeguard your energy levels and, and you, were able to articulate that to them and they were able to hear that and respect that too. It's, but it's a complex process. It is. It is absolutely. Thank you for your kind words. And another thing, of course, is Francis, that, you know, when people say to you, you know, relax, take it easy. You know, sometimes that's actually not that easy to do. Uh-huh. I mean, how do, how do you actually do it? Can, can you give us some specific <laughs> things to yeah. help you relax? Thank you so much for for asking that, Joe, because I happened to have to go for a few blood tests myself recently. And I almost, I may at some point actually (laughs) talk to the nurses who are taking the bloods about about that, because they all say, just relax, but they don't (laughs) tell you what to do. I happen to have some strategies up my sleeve, so I, I, I know how to relax. But I just keep thinking, if only, if only the nurses, the phlebotomists, the doctors, whoever's doing the blood test or whatever intervention it is, could actually say to someone, what I'd like you to do is make your out breath longer than your in breath. That is a way of physically introducing relaxation. So what you do, I tend to to encourage people to count their breath in. So I say, take a breath in for four, hold it for two, and then breathe out for seven. And that's, and so the out breath taking longer than the in breath. I, I don't fully understand the physiology and I probably ought to, but but it, it induces relaxation. And I think that that's, you know, that's the first and to me, the most practical relaxation skill. So your out breath longer than your in breath. Find your own route, find your own way of counting. Some people like it, like to think about it visually. They like to imagine breathing out through a straw or trying to keep a feather kind of up in, in the air. Anything that makes your out breath longer than your in breath. That's the first thing. Secondly, 
there's there's abdominal breathing and that's where you just you put uh, your hand one hand on your chest one hand on your tummy and you take a breath in a deep breath in and you make your tummy the hand on your tummy move out further than the hand on your chest and again that introduces a deep level of abdominal breathing that induces relaxation and then the third thing, again, a practical strategy is, is what I call muscle tense release. And again, don't get caught up in, oh, I have I clenched my fists and raised my shoulders? It doesn't matter how you do it. Just tense your muscles, clench them up, talk yourself through it. Go, okay, I, my muscles are tight and tense. I'm holding them. I can feel that they're hard. And then you very slowly and gradually release that muscle tension. So you let your fists gradually open, you let your shoulders drop down, you feel the release and you actually talk yourself through. You say, I can feel relaxation flowing through the muscle groups that I've tensed. There are a lot of, you know, apps on the phone that you can use. You can find scripts to help you with, with, with muscle tense release relaxation. But it's, it's just, again, as I say, don't get caught up in how to do it. Just find a way to tense some muscles and then release them and just focus your attention on the relaxation flowing through. That's fantastic advice. And and one of the things that helped me, Francis, was, you know, especially like, for example, when I was, you know, getting a cannula in my hand, was to visualize something positive. Like for me, it was it was a, like an image of me playing with my son, for example. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. that's, I guess, that sort of took my mind of what, whatever was happening. And it helped me relax. What's your take on that? I think that's great. And thank you, because I was the relaxation strategies that I, I was talking about are quite physical relaxation strategies. And actually it's, thank you, because it's really important to recognize that you can also relax your mind using visual imagery. I really do try to imagine myself on a beach. And <laughs> I can tell you in Britain in February that <laughs> it's quite, a, quite a, a challenge of the imagination. But what it does, and, and I think what I would say, I don't know whether you did this with your visualization, Joe, but to actually with visualization, try to build in some of the other senses as well so that you're actually thinking about, okay, so I can feel myself kicking the ball to my, to my son. I can, you know, imagine the laughter that you're hearing from him. Think about what you can, what you can feel. So for me, with my, uh, imagery of the beach, you know, I'm actually f- almost trying to feel the warmth of the sun on, on my skin. I, I can hear the lapping of the waves on the beach. I can feel the sand between my toes. I can smell the sea air. Building, you know, use your imagination and build in all of those senses. And then you, you know, then you can really take yourself out of the horrible medical setting that you're in to a place that that's a better place for you. Yeah, that's that's fantastic, Francis. I, I love that advice. That's a whole different level of uh, sophistication to that you know visual imagery <laughs> that's great yeah, 
Francis, so another thing I want to talk about is sleep, because mm-hmm. many of us have problems sleeping either before, during, or after treatment. So why does it happen, and, and what are some of the steps that you can follow to have better sleep? Yeah, so I think the diagnosis and then the treatment of cancer, and as I say, you know, post-cancer treatment, it, sleep is incredibly disrupted. It's for all sorts of reasons. Obviously, I'm a psychologist, so so mind racing is going to be the top of my list. And, you know, your mind is going to be racing with all sorts of thoughts. I think that it's also, you know, the treatment that you go through has a grueling effect on your body and that impacts on your body's kind of natural rhythms and, and, and sleep is such a habit. And so changes to the routine, you know, you may have been can, you know, cancer may disrupt your, your usual routines in a really profound way. So it's not at all surprising that, that sleep is, is disrupted. And I think the other thing about sleep is that it's, it's at nighttime that I think the lone, often the loneliness and the isolation and the, the fears kick in again, back to mind racing. So how do you, how do you manage that? Well, in the research I did for my book, I was really interested to discover that even without cancer diagnosis or treatment, people worry a huge amount about sleep. And they think that we overestimate how much sleep we actually need to function. So the first thing I would say is actually, you know, if you're having a bad night of sleep, again, try not to catastrophize of the kind of, oh, my next day is going to be ruined, my I'm not going to be able to manage the next round of chemo, whatever it might be that that that's that's going through your head. Kind of just actually reassuring yourself that you can rest, you know, letting your body just loosen and unwind and lie down. That in itself has a deeper effect physiologically than 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 we realize. So that's the first thing. But I think the second thing I would say is is really look at your sleep habits, at your sleep hygiene. So try try not to let uh, cancer diagnosis and treatment disrupt those sleep patterns too profoundly. So you know, try to go to bed and get up at, at roughly the same the same time each day. Look at if you have a disrupted night, it's very natural to think I'm going to try and, and catch up during the day and I'll have some naps and rests through and, and sleep in the day. Actually, if you can rest but don't sleep during the day, because then actually you won't then perhaps sleep as get off to sleep as well when you're then trying to do so at at night. So look carefully at your bedtime, the time you get up, and this idea of kind of compensating for, for lost sleep, because I think that can get one into unhelpful habits. I think this, the, another thing I would say is that we can get into the habit of almost associating bed with lying awake and worrying. So if you're aware that that's something that you do, that you almost start to worry the minute your head hits the pillow, actually try, try to break that association. So look at finding a way to 
Maybe just have a chair in your room near your bed so that instead of lying in bed, you just get up and you're in a, you're warm and comfy in a nice armchair. And then when you think you're about to fall back to sleep, then get back into bed. So try to have bed the place where you sleep, not the place where you lie awake worrying. And then I think, you know, at a practical level, have a notebook and pen by the bed so that, you know, I know I often have my kind of thoughts about, oh, I need to order that or get that for my daughter or sort something out. And actually just being able to write it down helps, helps to allow me to kind of put my mind at rest. So I think those would the things I would suggest. Yeah, that's great advice, Francis. Because I definitely, I definitely feel like um, I have to write something down, or I'll forget, and the world is going to end. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yes. And that's and and the middle of the night is such a tough moment for that. Exactly. Yeah. And and one thing you touched on, um, Francis, is that cancer disrupts so many things in our lives. You know, during treatment. And I guess after treatment as well, and that includes sex. So what would you say to, to someone? How, how do you go about making that better? How do you go about improving it? Because you, you know, you've got a lot to deal with, but at the same time, you want this to be a, just a normal, healthy part of your life. Yeah, abs- absolutely. Uh, and I think, I think it comes back to actually to talking as a couple together. And acknowledging fears. So I worked with a woman who really was so distressed by the fact that she and her husband had stopped having sex and she felt, you know, all the insecurities associated with that. And actually what happened was that eventually she did agree to invite her husband to come in and and meet with, with us jointly. And actually what it turned out was that he was deeply loving towards her, still very attracted to her. She had thought that he no longer felt any any physical attraction to her, but that wasn't the case at all. But he was absolutely terrified of hurting her. She'd had, she'd had a mastectomy and he was really, really anxious about, about touching her. And, and he also had, he had found some really wrong site that said that after chemo, a woman's risk of having a heart attack during sex could be increased. I mean, you know, this was, oh, wow. there was no, no basis to this, but that was, and I don't even know whether that was actually what he had properly read. That's what he had taken from, from this. So he was just really frightened about, uh, about initiating physical contact at all, let alone sex with, with his wife. So we talked that through. And then what we did was, you know, they hadn't had sex for months, if not a bit more than a year. And what we talked about was just actually that, you know, not to go straight back into to sexual intercourse, but to find a way just to resume intimacy together. And I'm really conscious that people going through treatment and some of some of the treatments there's no getting around the fact that some of the treatments do have an impact on on sexual function but what as as a couple i think it's about finding ways to talk about it and finding ways to 
maintain a loving physical intimacy with each other without or despite the impact of the cancer. That makes so much sense, Francis, because ultimately, yes, like you say, I mean, um, intimacy is so much more than sex. And this is what this is what we all need. This is what we're all looking for, to be understood, to be loved, to be cared for, and, you know, for our partner to show that in, in, in the right way. Exactly. But I do think it is so hard for the partners who, you know, may have been with you through those most intimate but awful moments of treatment and and side effects and you know and it can for some couples change how they how they feel about each other's bodies and so i think the point is exactly as you're saying to look at the breadth of love and how one can express love and intimacy and not to feel that it's not to get caught up with it it has to be intercourse straight away yes that's right not not to get caught up in the mechanics or that it has to be a certain way exactly exactly yeah fantastic francis so um you know i'm sure that there's, there's things that get overlooked by people when they're going uh, through cancer or after cancer. What would you say are some of the biggest things that get tend to get overlooked? I think the biggest thing is actually being kind to yourself and setting, really looking at the expectations that you that you have of yourself. I, I just, I think people expect themselves to be strong, skilled, competent, confident, not all the time, but but a lot of the time through this whole process. And and I think that it's just there's something about just recognizing the inevitability of psychological ups and downs in the same way that you will have physical highs and and lows and i think if i could train oncologists and oncology nurses and i just think just just talk to people about the fact that they are going to find this find this hard and that they you go through it at deep moments of doubt anxiety anger fear depression and just in acknowledging that you then Again, you don't get caught up in in it so much, and nor do you start to add in kind of self punishment, guilt, all those extra emotions on top of that. Absolutely, that's that's fantastic advice, Francis. And and what would you say to someone? What is the best advice you can give to go, to someone after cancer? After cancer, I want to celebrate with someone. I want to say I want to join in with that excitement, the the achievement involved in all of that. But I think that the thing that I would add to that wonderful news is that it's the start of a new chapter rather than the end of the story. And I know that's that sounds a bit a, a, a bit trite and not not very practical. But but I think it is really important because from my experience, what a lot of people do is they actually, the, the treatment is so grueling and they just have to keep putting one foot forward, keep getting themselves, they find a way to get through the treatment that I think it's, for many people, it's only after treatment 
and the successful completion of treatment that they actually begin to process emotionally what they've been through. And so I, I, I think not everybody does this, but I think the, the majority of, of people do. And, and, and I would just like that to be just acknowledged and, and highlighted for people at the end of treatment. So celebrate, but, but also be aware that there may be more complex emotions than you, than you expected. Yeah, that, that's fantastic advice, Francis. I know that with cancer, things things will never be the same. But at the same time, like like you just said, life after cancer is a new beginning and the chance to yes. do things in a different mm-hmm. way. And that in many cases is doing things in a better way and starting things that you may have missed out on. Because now, you know, every day is is really a, a present that you receive and it's up to you what what you do with it, isn't it? Absolutely. And I, I think you described that perfectly, Joe. The only little thing I would add in is that <laughs> there will be days when you wake up and you don't think it's a present and you know, you're you're just it's a bad day and you're in a bad mood. That's okay too, but it's, <laughs> but it, but I, I completely agree with you. It's about what you what you make of this new chapter in your in your story. Exactly, and if we had to take this present uh, analogy even further, I would add to that that maybe <laughs> those bad days. It's one of those times when you got a present you didn't want, so maybe you can put that <laughs> to the side. Exactly. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so maybe we're probably exhausted this this analogy about <laughs> about presence. Yeah. So, uh, Francis, I loved your book. I think it's fantastic. If someone wanted to check it out and check out your other books, what is the best way to go about it? Oh, thank you so much, and and I I really appreciate your kind words about the book and also the chance to tell other people about it. So, in Britain, I believe that the publisher sent that we sent a copy of the book to to all the public libraries in Britain whether they're still there i don't know obviously amazon is probably the the easiest place to to get hold of the book but what i would also say is you know if if people feel comfortable in talking about it with their medical team if you can check w- whether you know the medical team have their own little library of resources for their their patient group you know that would be a way a wonderful way of sort of you know seeing if if you mention it to them if if they have the funds to buy a couple of copies and then you know lend it out to to people that would be a great way of 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 getting the book known about I think it is known about, but it's a little bit haphazard. So, you know, anything that just tells people, look, there is this particular resource, I'm, I'm very appreciative of, but it's, it's, as I said, it's, it's on Amazon. It's in paperback. It's, it's not hugely expensive. Uh, I think it's about eight pounds in the uk and i i'm afraid i don't know what it costs in the other countries that's nothing francis and absolutely and i like what we talked about you should use every tool that you can find and this happens to be i think a, a fantastic tool so 
Thank you so much for your time, Francis. That's been incredibly insightful. So, and thank you for your practical advice and and the fact that you clearly so care about this this area and you care about outcomes for people. Oh, Joe. Well, I I, I can't thank you enough. It's been just a delight. I, I was a little bit nervous at the start, and actually, I've just just reminded myself. Thank you. I do. I do feel very passionately about it, and and actually, I love the chance to talk. So thank you for that. <laughs> thank you, Francis. I appreciate that.